welcome to Season 2 of the Thompson Rivers University Business Law Society Podcast. My name is Bowen Matheson. I'm a 3L student at TRU Law and the host for this second season. I was among the founding team of TRU Law students who started the Business Law Society in 2019, and I produced Season 1 of this podcast last school year. This podcast aims to provide students, lawyers, and the general public with insights from some of the greatest legal professionals in Canada. We hope that our conversations with rising stars, legal innovators, law professors, Queen's Counsel, and other legal professionals provide our listeners with impacting and thought-provoking entertainment. So with that said, this podcast is not legal advice. Our fourth guest on Season 2 of the TRU Business Law Society podcast is Paul Beckman. Paul is an associate at Blake's in Vancouver, and his practice focuses on corporate commercial law. He assists clients with a variety of business law matters, including mergers and acquisitions, corporate finance, private equity transactions, as well as corporate reorganizations and restructurings. Paul acts for clients in a wide range of industries, including technology, retail, natural resources, and life sciences. And most importantly to this podcast, Paul is a TRU Law 2020 alumni. So, Paul, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, can you share a brief overview of your story from working in the Canadian Armed Forces to becoming a law student to now being a junior associate at Blake's? Definitely. I did my undergrad in, in Ottawa. I found myself interested in, in, in the military. I didn't grow up with a military background, but being in Ottawa, you see a lot more of it and become acutely aware of it, or more so anyways than, than I would have been otherwise. And I thought, you know, this would be a great opportunity to get a bit of a different experience and uh, learn a few things. And so I, I joined at that point. So I was, I was in the reserves, so I didn't, I didn't do it full time, but except when went on full time training. But yeah, that was a great experience. My interest in, in law really got started when I was working on Parliament Hill, kind of really made me think about law and what that might look like for myself. So that was really my, my route to law, and I would dedicate a lot of it to having been on the ground in Ottawa. Sounds like it was one of those environments that immersed you into it and gave you a little bit of perspective on something you'd be interested in. That's right. There's only one other law student that I know of at TRU who was a reservist as well. I mean, Simon Enns, I believe he's up in Prince George now. That's right. There's a, there's a few others as well, but, and have been over time, but I know Simon. Yeah. Weren't you guys both part-time when you were in law school as well? Yeah. So I continued it for five years, including during law school. It was good, uh, good part-time job helped, you know, bring in a bit of money to help pay for school as well. That leads me to a question that I had a little bit later but I may as well ask it now because I, it's still something of a reputation that you have. Because when I mentioned to some of my peers that I was hosting you on the podcast, some of them still remember what you did for your 1L summer. So your, your work ethic has kind of transcended several TRU law generations. Um, and so do you want to share with us what you did? Because I still remember it. And I think many people listening to the podcast would at least be interested to hear. For sure. Yeah, I, I worked at a sawmill uh, in Vernon, my 1L summer. So I thought to myself, you know, what can I do to help pay for school? And I, I had the opportunity to do full time uh, work for the military that summer. But you know, I thought maybe I could find something that paid a little bit more. And yeah, the, the forestry industry is quite strong or, or 
um, there is at least quite a bit of it in, in the interior. So I found a job at Tolco in Vernon uh, doing the graveyard shift cleaning for the summer. Um, and that pretty well paid for, for my next year of school. And you were doing the, the graveyard shift, night shift, right? Night shift, yeah. 11.30 p.m. till 7.30 in the morning. But yeah, it was, it was good. I, I did quite a bit of commuting back and forth between Kamloops and Vernon and then would, would stay in Vernon as well. But uh, yeah, that was really, really kind of neat to see, to see the, the industry and um, helpful for paying for school. Okay, the last thing that I want to just clarify, you say that you, you would stay sometimes overnight in Vernon. Didn't you used to sleep in your car during the day sometimes? Yeah, I, I did. I did. Yeah. It was hard to find a place to rent because there's not a large university in Vernon. So I think there's a college, but there wouldn't be many people looking to sublet their their place while they're gone for the summer back home. So I found it kind of a challenge. And, and what I could find was, was expensive to the point where it, it didn't make sense to really do the job because then you're paying rent at home plus rent in, in Vernon. So I found myself taking the cheaper option and sleeping in my car sometimes. That shows your commitment to saving money so that you could afford your education though. And yeah, Vernon's gotten worse. I think they have 1% or lower vacancy rate in that city, like as of 2022. It's- Wow, is that right? Yeah, almost impossible to get accommodation there. Wow, okay, I can believe it. Thanks for sharing that story. Cause yeah, people still remember that. and. <laughs> I think that there are a lot of 1Ls, they go into their first year summer feeling like a pressure, like, oh, I need to get some kind of law experience. I need to stand out from the crowd. What are your suggestions for first year law students and what they can do in their 1L summer to best set themselves up for success in 2L? It's a good question. And, and I think it's different for every person. You know, I don't think there's really one answer, but I, I would kind of give a couple thoughts. One of them is enjoy your summer. And by that, I, I don't necessarily mean just don't do anything, but like I would recommend doing something or do, do a job perhaps or, or volunteer, but do something that you're going to enjoy, enjoy the summer because it, you know, thereafter you're going to be probably working full time for, for quite some time. So yeah. And, and then another thought I think is, is do something different. There's kind of a bit of an idea that maybe, you know, there, there's a set path, which, which implies that, you know, people are supposed to do a certain thing, but I don't think that's true. I think setting yourself apart, being a bit different, having a bit of a different journey, different work experiences can be very valuable and set yourself apart on a resume as well. So for myself, you know, I think one thing that made me, my resume, my background a bit different was, you know, my, my military experience. Not too many people have that on their resume, so it, it might make someone look twice. And then, yeah, working at a, at a sawmill again is is a different kind of an experience than other people might have. And so it could be tree planting, for example. I've heard recruiters say that you know they really like tree planters, people with tree planting experience, because you know, you, you have a demonstrated history of hard work and perseverance, and it's it's a bit different probably learned some soft skills um, doing something like that as well. So I don't think there's any one particular thing that someone needs to do in 1L, except I would say do something and don't be afraid to do something different. In fact, I think it could be quite beneficial. Yeah, things that make you stand out on your resume aren't necessarily legal or law related opportunities or experience you have. It can just be 
the fact that you actually stayed with an employer for a pretty considerable amount of time, you know, like that stands out to people or, you know, working in industries which are a fair bit different from law, but you may be doing legal work in those industries, right? So, Mm -hmm. I mean, something for me that stood out was the fact that I'd worked in oil and gas before law school. Mm -hmm. And that stood out to some employers in some interviews because they do work with those industries. And so they say, oh, you, so you know a little bit about the oil industry say, oh yeah, more than a little, you know, and Mm -hmm. that's invaluable, but it's also not only because you might know the industry, but you, because you might know the type of people who work in those places and how to communicate with them because law is a customer service job. No, that's a great point. I think it's very valuable to be able to relate to your clients and to, to know even just the lingo or, you know, just, just have a basic understanding of the industry. One other thing I would point out for first years and just people generally for OCIs or for looking for jobs, especially if you're interested in business law, is read read the business news, read Bloomberg, uh, subscribe to the Wall Street Journal, CNBC, something like that, and just follow what's going on and learn some of the terminology, some of the metrics that are used and just have a basic awareness of business and, and finance, even if it's just to be able to have a hold a conversation with a client or someone at your firm. There are some that are very accessible types of newsletters that you can sign up to. I mean, personally, one that I sign up to that I get daily newsletters is called Morning Brew. And it's great. It's understandable. It's plain language. They give small synopsis of markets, finance, anything relating to interesting business or entertainment things. It's pretty varied. It has, I mean, and it's readable in less than 10 minutes in your morning. And for me, it's one of those things that just, I've gained a fair bit of knowledge about certain industries that I wouldn't have ever taken on on myself because it's kind of intimidating looking up, you know, details on private equity transactions and you get a Google page of search results where you're like, I am already anxious trying to take this on, you know, so it's it, but it is invaluable if you can talk to it. And yeah, that's the next question that I I had for you, because you mentioned in the pre-interview that you've been on a few large U.S. private equity transactions lately. So before we talk about those, could you give us a SparkNotes rundown of what private equity transactions are? Definitely. Private equity broadly are funds from different investors that really then their business model is to the private equity funds is to go and buy businesses, usually controlling stakes in various businesses, and then run those businesses, try to improve them, and then sell them again, hopefully for profit, and then distribute those funds back out to their investors, hopefully with a return. That's, that's broadly what private equity does, and it gets quite a bit more complex and granular from there, but that's it in a nutshell. It sounds like the we've got a good small business that has real potential and private equity investors have the resources, have the networks to build, to scale, to finance those businesses. And from there, they're hoping to exit. They're hoping to sell it. Maybe it'll get bought by a large subsidiary that's like, this is now not only a part of our market, they're a threat to our business. We'd rather buy them. That's one opportunity, right? Or maybe they just want to kill them, but that's like competition law gets involved in that sometimes, right? Right. Yeah. There's broadly a few different exit strategies, like you mentioned. And one is uh, to go on the stock market to do an initial public offering. Another is, is sometimes you sell to another private equity fund. You might sell to a strategic buyer, which is 
someone in, in the similar industry, for example, maybe you have a sports equipment business, then you might sell to Adidas or, or Nike or, or they're already in that space. Uh, it's also possible to do a management buyout where essentially the management then goes and buys the company, but it's rare because sometimes the amount of money that's required is quite high. And then sometimes it doesn't work out and they bankrupt bankruptcy or insolvency, but that's hopefully uh, not the case. But, but there's, there's a number of, of exit strategies um, that they typically employ. And yeah, and the goal isn't usually to hold these businesses for a long time. It's usually medium term, it's probably three years or so, and then they look to exit. For private equity investors, these are usually very large investors. It's typically institutional money that invests in them. So these might be sovereign wealth funds, they might be pension funds or family offices, which is wealthy families that are looking to invest their money and so these are not liquid liquid investments these typically you know, because you can't when you buy a stock for example you can usually sell that stock quite quickly but when you buy a private company it's much more complicated to to then sell that private company again you have to find the buyer right that's right yeah, there was something that crossed my mind that was interesting to me because I came across it doing a paper in entertainment law last semester and learning about certain issues while like examples like sovereign wealth funds, they may have things called vice clauses by which they will not actually invest in certain areas, despite those areas being good potential for investment or even like a real great one. And, you know, that, that could be like a religious institution not wanting to be involved in adult entertainment industry related investments and whatnot. I mean, but have you ever encountered any vice clauses or anything like that or where they're pretty clear and stipulating like we don't want anything to do with this area? I haven't, no. Um, but I also haven't been very closely involved with a lot of the fund formation, which is where, where that kind of a thing would, would come in into play. The fund gets set up and they might include those kinds of clauses because funds, they also usually focus on certain areas. They, they might target, for example, light industrial, and that's what the private equity fund focuses on, or perhaps real estate or infrastructure. They, and they might try to identify areas within that industry. So for example, you know, the example you provided might not come into play for a lot of private equity funds, but there might be similar areas where they might. Right. It's more so that it isn't that they don't want to invest, but it's because they're prioritizing a certain area instead, something that they know. Right, right. With your experience in those large U.S. private equity transactions, how would you contrast them with other Canadian deals that you've been involved in? It's a good question. And the short answer is, so far, they've been larger. And typically, they're cross-border transactions. I've been involved in, in private equity deals, both in Canada and in the States. And typically for, for the U.S. ones, they might have a, a U.S. law firm that's, you know, it might be a U.S.-based private equity fund. They might then engage a U.S. law firm. And the private equity fund identifies an investment that they want to do, but that company might do business in Canada, for example, then 
the law firm might approach us and say, we're, there's this, our client, they are buying this business and they have X amount of business in Canada and there's a number of Canadian subsidiaries. Can you help? And then we're involved there. So we're often working quite closely with U.S. counsel as well. And it involves the, the this kind of sometimes multi-jurisdictional team, different countries sometimes, not just Canada, U.S., though um, often so far the deals I've been on gen- generally are, are Canada and the States. And that might be different than a Canadian private equity deal where you know, it, they, it could be a Canadian private equity fund that's buying a business that also has business in the States. But thus far, it's a local BC-based business, then that does business um, in Canada, for example. And, and that's different. They can still be very large, but it's just it's, you might not work with U.S. counsel, for example. It might be us running, running the whole deal. And then it also depends on if you're on the sell side or if you're on the buy side. It can it can add a number of different aspects to the deal as well. Have you found any differences that you've picked up between Canadian Council and U.S. Council? Not anything major. I mean, the the U.S. lawyers are very busy, so have been recently. It's been a booming market, the private equity space. So there's been a lot of work to go around, and often. It's not uncommon to get emails at late hours or or so on, and the time difference can can really become noticeable after a while when they're they're emailing you on, on Eastern time. It's it's just a little bit more complex. It's not it, it's not prohibitive or anything. And at least with the United States, we're only a three hour difference. I mean, in the event you were working with somebody out in the Pacific, then yeah, you'd be staying up late, or they would. That was another question that I had that I asked to uh, a former guest on the podcast. Have you found it to be more accessible for you to be involved in any kind of of calls or these kinds of opportunities as a junior lawyer that back in the day, people would have actually had to travel to actually experience those negotiations and whatnot? Have you been involved in anything at Blake's that they've done just from Teams calls that you don't think you would have been able to do before the pandemic? I don't think so. Um, I mean, it's it's also hard to know uh, what it was before as far as the negotiation goes the usually what happens is they will engage investment bankers or financial advisors that will go in and negotiate a lot of the the terms of the deal so then they might prepare a letter of intent or a term sheet that then they send to us and then we use that to 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 do the deal so very often there's other advisors involved as well and so those aspects as far as negotiating those key terms might not necessarily be the case. We would then more negotiate the representations and warranties, for example, or indemnities. And with some of these larger deals, myself as a junior lawyer, I haven't necessarily been involved as much in actually negotiating those because um, some they can be quite serious and, and have some, some real consequences. And with a large deal, seniority matters for that. Of course. Is that something that you think you're aspiring to get into as you develop your practice at some point? Definitely. If anybody wanted to connect with you to learn more about your work or your services, how could they best reach you? You can send me an email. You can, if you just look up my, my name on the Blake's website, you can find my work email there. You can email me through that email. You can also find me on LinkedIn, send me a message. 
And uh, I'm always happy to go for coffees or have an informational phone call if that would be of help. Always happy to help any TRU alumni and go on this journey together with you guys. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Paul. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you're interested in learning more about the TRU Business Law Society, you can check out our website at www.trubls.com. See you in the next episode.